Happy New Year. Welcome to the first days of what could be your best year ever in your pursuit of God. This is the time to set your mind on things above, to focus your heart on deepening your spiritual rhythms. You know you want to. That's why you're here after all. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the pastoral team here at Dayspring. Our team is standing by, waiting to help you discover the best path forward to deepening your spiritual roots. Whether you are here in the room or watching online, live or on demand at some point in the future. If you are visiting today, we want you to know that this is the kind of family that will enthusiastically welcome you as you are, with all of your questions and doubts, with all of your struggles and brokenness. Here, you can discover Jesus, find healing, and a community who will love you enough to spur you on to emotionally and spiritually healthy living. That's the journey we're on, too. So welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find study questions by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, let's join our service. When I grow up, I'm going to be a fireman. When I grow up, I'm going to be a garbage man. I'm going to be a policeman. I'm going to be a rock star. I'm going to be a teacher. I'm going to be president of the United States. I'm going to be an astronaut. Do you remember your kids declaring their future when they were small? Or maybe even remember a time or two if you're young enough that you did the same. Uh, With Josh, these were almost weekly conversations. It was different every time. At first, I would try to engage him just to get some idea of what he was thinking, but since it changed every week, eventually I would just respond with, sounds great, Josh. You can do anything you set your mind to. Now, anyone else said something like that to your kid? Am I the only one? I'm okay. Thank you, Jay and Kathy. Uh, Sounds like great parenting to me. Empowering your kid to reach for the stars, encouraging them, supporting their dreams, believing in them. Turns out that's a parenting fail. It's one of the lies we'll unpack today as we continue in our series, Lies We Believe and the Truth That Sets Us Free. Now, for those of you uh, joining us for the first time, we've been learning quite a bit about lies, about how prevalent they are in our world and the damage they do to our lives. Uh, We're immersed in a sea of lies. This world is under the control of the liar who we also know as Satan. And in him, there are only lies. He is the father of lies. His number one priority is to stop the advance of God's kingdom on this earth in general, but most especially in the lives of those who follow Christ. He has skillfully woven lies in and around truth, doing his best to twist it, making his lies sound good enough to be true, making his lies look more attractive to our broken minds than the truth. But in the end, you can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig. And a lie is a lie is a lie. 
Those lies damage uh, our view of ourselves. They reinforce our emotional brokenness. They work uh, to keep us from seeing ourselves for who we really are, for who we were created to be, uh, from fully stepping into the wholeness that God has for us. Uh, those lies also damage our view of other people, making it harder to build deep, intimate community with each other the way God designed us to live. Uh, they make communication harder. They make it harder to love our neighbor the way we are called to. And these lies also tragically damage our view of God, which just adds to the mess of what we believe about ourselves and others. But they also work to diminish uh, our God in our eyes. They make us doubt his love, his goodness, his grace, sucking the passion out of our pursuit of this great, magnificent God who surprisingly wants us to know him as intimately as he knows us. And they damage our view of life, which is where we find ourselves today. Lies we believe about life. But before we get to that, we aren't just exposing lies. That's only part of it. We certainly need to know what the lies, uh, uh, what lies have infiltrated our minds, our theology, and our way of life. But knowing the lies doesn't mag magically fix things. It's only part of the battle. The battle is won by knowing the truth, believing the truth, living the truth. As the author of truth, God has infused truth with his power. Uh, the truth exposes the lies and supernaturally empowers us to live another way. Now, as I've said every week, we've based this series on the book Lies We Believe by Chris Thurman. Uh, as a psychologist, he has done the research to identify the lies that do the most damage to us and the truths that counteract those lies. Uh, there are more truths, just as there are more lies than we have time to cover in the series. But we've got to start somewhere, and the things that cause the most damage, coupled with the truths that heal that damage, seems like a great place to start. In all, we are looking at 13 truths. <laughs> because, uh, because of the way the liar has woven the lies in and around the truth, the more truth we know and live by, the more power at our disposal to unravel the lies. We started our pursuit of truth at the very foundation with the truth about truth. Uh, any builder knows that the structure you build is only as strong as its foundation. And no matter how good the house looks, problems will only be magnified and multiplied when built on a faulty foundation. The truth about truth is that there is truth. It doesn't come from us. We don't own it. We can't change it or modify it to suit our whims. Truth is solely God's domain, and it is never changing. We've also learned that to err is human. God doesn't ask us to be perfect in anything. He, he calls us to strive for excellence. For those of us with some per perfectionistic tendencies, this one can be a bit challenging. But all we need to do is bring our best which leaves room for him to show up and do the rest. Uh, the third truth we unpacked began to free us from the bondage of people-pleasing because you can't please everyone. And while we certainly believe that you bless God when you bless others, at the end of the day, our motive needs to be to bless God. We serve an audience of one. And next up, we were reminded that there's no gain without pain. 
The Holy Spirit leads us to righteous living along the path of self-discipline, which is closely related to self-sacrifice. Living for God requires dying to self, which happens very painfully because we are addicted to ourselves. We'll definitely see some application for this truth today. And then the last truth that we've covered up to this point, love never fails. God is love and nothing we ever do will ever make him love us less or more. He just loves, period. We love that love never fails us, but man, it's hard to live that one out in the way we live for others. We are so much better at being selective about love. I can love the easy people in my life, but it's way easier to just walk away from the challenging to love people. But love never fails. Now, I think that brings us all up to speed and reminds us of what we blocked from the previous weeks because we were hoping those truths would go away so we didn't have to do anything with them. Maybe Pastor Chris will just move on and we can pretend that we never heard them so we don't have to change and grow. Mm -hmm. Like that's going to happen. This is day spring, we grow here. Be in denial on your own time. Okay, where were we? Oh yeah, a world of lies. Look out for number one. Do your own thing. If it feels good, do it. You deserve to be happy. Like we're bombarded with messages like these. They show up in advertising, TV shows, movie, magazines, social media, and the education system, a plethora of self-help books. We've been so brainwashed that these seem like good ideas, not lies. Surely they are just harmless ideas, not damaging lies. Uh, in his book, Chris Thurman uses the, the metaphor of a frog and water. If you drop a frog into boiling water, it will immediately jump out because it can tell the danger it's in. Yet, if you put a frog in room temperature water and slowly turn up the heat, the frog will stay in the water and boil to death. In this case, we are the frog. The world we live in is the water. All of the godless philosophies the world offers provide the heat that is slowly boiling us to death. We are being slowly boiled to death every day by these delusional philosophies. So let's look at six of these toxic to the soul philosophies. First, you can have it all. Right away, we know this isn't true. And yet, we live like it is. We live as if you can have your cake and eat it too. You can have all of the flavor but none of the calories. Tastes great, less filling. Uh, I saw an ad on social media this week, lose 50 pounds without changing your diet. Or get uh, ripped with a six pack only 10 minutes a day. Not possible. I work out five days a week and have trouble keeping a two pack. We, we want intimacy in our relationships, but every time our phone dings, we get distracted which means we do have intimacy with our relationship, with our phone. Uh, we want to be spiritually mature, but we don't really have time to read the Bible. We want our kids to have faith, but we never talk with them about ours. And soccer keeps us busy on Sundays. Having it all in our culture means that we should have everything we want without having to give up anything. That's not how life works. 
Every yes is also a no, and every no is also a yes. That probably needs a moment to sink in. Every yes is also a no, and every no is also a yes. Here's what I mean. When you go to a restaurant, you are handed a menu. You look it over, and then the server comes and says, are you having the whole menu tonight? No. What would you like to order? And you pick a nice, beautifully cooked sirloin steak, which means that you said no to halibut, chicken, pork chops, and everything else on the menu. See, every yes is also a no. That's how life works. We are constantly choosing options from a menu. Yes to one option is by default no to another. If I say yes to more hours at work, I am saying no to more family time. There are a finite number of hours in the week. Something has to adjust. A yes to a late night movie is a no to sleep. Yes to that car payment is no to your IRA. It's impossible to have it all because whenever you say yes to something, you say no to something else. There is only one person in history who could argue that he had it all. He was richer than Bill Gates, made people's sexiest man alive, every year he was alive in the 10th century BC, and had the brains of Einstein. We know him as King Solomon. And here's how he described his life. I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate the, my many flourishing groves. I bought slaves, both men and women, and others were born into my household. I also owned large herds of flocks and more than any of the kings who had lived in Jerusalem before me. I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, and had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could desire. So I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. That's about as close to having it all as it gets. And all of that made him happy, right? One happy camper. The richest, the wisest, the sexiest, the happiest, right? We know the answer. Just a few verses before these, he sums it up like this. I observed everything going on under the sun, and really, it is all meaningless, like chasing the wind. I think the Apostle Paul had it right when he said this to Timothy. Yet, true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing in with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. He told the Philippian church that he found the secret to being content in everything. Hmm. If only there were some place we could read about it. The second damaging lie about life is you shouldn't have to wait for what you want. You shouldn't have to wait for what you want. And we don't. 
As of 2021, American credit card debt is more than $800 billion. We want what we want, and we want it now. Nowadays, we get mad when Amazon Prime is a day late. We don't want to wait. We don't know how to wait for anything. We don't slow down when, we, when the light turns yellow. We speed up so we don't have to wait. A decade ago, the average time it took to check into a hotel was four minutes. Now, it is 40 seconds. Why? Because we don't like to wait. We don't even wait to listen for understanding when our friends are talking. We have formulated our response and are just waiting for them to take a breather so we can pounce and pronounce. And let's be honest, we don't like to wait for God to show up either. We pray and then do without waiting for him to give us his answer. But at least we can say we prayed about it. Uh, we live in an I-shouldn't-have-to-wait world, and the spiritual, psychological, relational, sexual, and financial cost is astronomical. God's truth, on the other hand, says, better to be patient than powerful, better to have self-control than to conquer a city. What about you? Do you opt for unhealthy pleasure in the moment or the healthy pleasure down the road? We unpacked delayed gratification last week, so I'll leave it there. The third lie we believe about life is you can do anything you set your mind to. Now, on the surface, this doesn't sound so bad, especially for those of us who believe in hard work in the American way. The sky's the limit with our potential. If we just put our mind and imagination to it, we can accomplish anything, right? No, we can't. Every person is born, with, uh, is, is born with, is given by God a finite amount of talent, ability, gifts, intellect, and the like. These limitations put a ceiling over what we can accomplish in life. And so the next time your kid comes to you and says, I want to be a rocket scientist when I grow up, instead of saying, you can do anything you set your mind to, maybe try, that's a great idea. Let's make sure you go to college so that you can find out. Not that college is the best path for every occupation, but I'm not sure that it's possible to be a rocket scientist without it. Only God is God. Only God has no limitations. Only God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere at once. We might be created in his image, but we weren't given those attributes. We should be grateful for the gifts and talents he decided we should each have. We are all different Use them to our fullest capacity and be content. We should probably focus on doing the works that he appointed for us before the foundations of the world were laid. That way he gets all the glory he deserves. The fourth lie about life, being happy is the most important thing in life. Being happy is the most important thing in life. Now, who doesn't like to be happy? French philosopher Blaise Pascal said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Of course, happiness is better than unhappiness. That isn't the problem. The problem is that the world has made an idol of happiness. It is the be-all, end-all in all of our pursuits. When your marriage doesn't make you happy anymore, it's time to find a new one. When your job doesn't make you happy, find a new one. Being happy has become the most important thing in life. Even the best of us spends too much time and energy trying to make our kids happy. I'm a grandpa. 
I hate it when Avery is unhappy. But happiness is the focus leads to spoiled, entitled kids. We say yes too fast to avoid the dreaded tantrum. More important than happiness is holiness. Becoming mature, loving men and women of God is more important than happiness. If we focus on that, happiness will find its way into our lives. Lie about life number five. People are basically good. No, they're not. Apart from God, people are not good. We've assigned a value system to bad. Mass murder is worse than murder. Murder is worse than stealing. Cheating is worse than speeding. Adultery is worse than gossip, which is really good because when someone commits adultery, we really want to tell someone about it. Uh, the value system allows us to put ourselves above those bad people. So we feel good about ourselves. Sure, we have some flaws, but we're basically good. Most people are basically good because if she is bad because she gossips, then what am I? And I'm not bad, so people are basically good. Just a few bad eggs in the bunch. If only that were the way God saw it. Right before God sent the flood, way back in Genesis, we read this. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined, everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry that he had never made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. Everything was consistently and totally evil. This isn't something we can say about them. It's us. Apart from God, we are evil. And even with God, if it weren't for Jesus up there reminding God that he covered our sin, we'd be right there with him. He didn't destroy the earth, wiping out everyone but Noah and his family because they were just a few bad eggs in the bunch. Uh, the Apostle Paul saw himself clearly. He writes in Romans chapter 7, And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. Apart from Christ, nothing good. Fearfully and wonderfully made, but with a bent to sin. To hurt uh, our others, ourselves, and God. No one is righteous, not even one. Romans 3.10 and the last lie for today, life should be easy and fair. We live for easy. I like it when things are easy. For me, the opposite of easy isn't necessarily hard, but complex. Complexity is the opposite of easy, and I spend my life navigating complexity. I'd like a little easy every now and then. Of course, the problem isn't easy in and of itself, the quest for easy has given us microwaves and dishwashers and garage door openers. Everyone likes easy. The problem is when we demand easy and get angry or resentful when something or someone isn't easy. We, try to, we begin to try to bend life to our will. We walk away from hard because it's easier. Life isn't easy. Jesus didn't promise 
easy. In fact, he promised just the opposite. John tells us that Jesus promised that in this world, you will have trouble. And Matthew tells us that Jesus said, each day has enough trouble of its own. Easy doesn't grow spiritually mature adults. If it did, life would be easy. Very closely related to easy is fair. Now, growing up, my grandma Myrna was the queen of fair. At Christmas, all of the grandkids had the same number of presents for which she had spent the same amount of money. If one kid needed shoes for school, all the grandkids got them because we had to be fair. Life isn't fair. Didi's family lost a cousin to a drunk driver who lived. That wasn't fair. Drug dealers and pornographers live like kings. Not fair. Cheaters get away with it. Liars don't get caught. All not fair. Good old King Solomon said that the righteous get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked get what the righteous deserve, at least in the short run. While we should stand up for, uh, 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 stand up to unfairness when we can, should correct it when we can, life is and will always be unfair until Christ comes and corrects it. But the expectation that life should be easy and fair does a fair share of damage to our view of life, of others, and most importantly, God. Now that covers the six most damaging lies we believe about life. While we can't change the fact that we live in a fallen world, we are called to rise above the lies and the values of this world. And we do that by embracing truth. And today, our first truth is that it's not all about you. I is the most common word in the English language. Well, every language, but they use a different word for it. I am smarter than he is. I have a nicer car than she does. I take out the garbage more than her. I wash the dishes more than him. At least I clean up after myself. I serve more than they do. I give more than they do. Nobody loves the Bible more than I do. Nobody has more respect for women than I do. I don't never make mistakes, hardly at all, rarely. I really have a way for, with words. And to top it off, I really am so, so humble. I'm so humble I got an award for it. Laugh all you want, but when I said it's not all about you, what's the first thing that crossed your mind? I don't live that way. <laughs> like, we all have an inner narcissist. Some of us just have one that's more noticeable than others. But don't fool yourself. We are all, to some degree or other, concerned with one thing only. How does this impact me? When your coworker gets breast cancer and has to be off work for six weeks, how does this impact me? I mean, how terrible for you. How am I ever going to get my work and hers done? When inflation is on the rise, how does this impact me? Like, even if it's only a flash, the how does this impact me is almost always the first thing that goes through our mind whenever any complexity comes our way. Most of us are spiritual enough to hide it, though. Of course, how does this impact me isn't the only way narcissism shows up in our lives. It's just probably the most common. We also feel entitled to better treatment by others. 
We think we are more important than we really are. I mean, I, I don't know how this place would get along without me. Uh, when you're flying first class, you are a cut above the people in the cattle car section. Can't they use their own bathroom? I, we need our ego stroked. Oh, Barbara, that was such a great job. What a pleasure you are to work with. I'm not near as bad as those sinners who skipped church to sleep in. Need I go on? Do you know who were narcissists? The Pharisees. They were arguably the most religious people around. They lived life strictly following the 615 laws of the Jewish law. They even added clarifications, all in the name of righteousness, so they could live more righteously than others. Yeah, uh, they didn't think much of Jesus. He was a threat. All of the people liked him. Crowds were following him. He had so much more influence. He healed people, which made him a superstar. All their righteousness couldn't make that happen. But he had the audacity to heal on the Sabbath. Everyone knew that righteous people rested on the Sabbath. He allowed the, his disciples to pick grain as they walked through the fields and eat it on the Sabbath. Can you imagine? But then he really crossed a line. Jesus said, I and the Father are one, claiming that he was God. How funny that the most righteous people around hated the righteous one. He saw them for what they were, people who do not practice what they preach, blind guides, fools, hypocrites. Their favorite hymn would have been the classic, How Great We Art. What's the opposite of me, me, me? Humility. The person who displays humility, which is the only antidote to narcissism, has a number of characteristics, which we should all claim to aim to cultivate in our lives. First, we should aim to serve, not be served. It doesn't get more Jesus-like than that. Mark 10.45 tells us, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. God himself gave up his right to be served so that he could serve us. He washed our feet. He healed our wounds. He comforted us, encouraged us, and then poured himself out as a drink offering on our behalf. How could we not live the same way? The Pharisees wanted to be served. They deserved to be served. Serving others helps us overcome our narcissism. The second characteristic of humility uh, that we should cultivate, value others more highly than yourself. Value others more highly than yourself. This doesn't mean that others are more valuable than yourself, just that you treat them as if it were true. Uh, Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Christ never diminished anyone. He was never condescending. He was never impatient with anyone. There was never any hint that someone didn't deserve to be in his presence. In fact, he met each person where they were 
and invited them on a journey with him, elevating their sense of self-worth. What if we could figure out how to elevate the self-worth of everyone we interacted with? The third characteristic of humility to cultivate, think accurately about yourself. It's important to note that humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It is an accurate view of yourself, neither too, too high nor too low, neither more positively or less negatively. Valuing others doesn't diminish me any more than it diminished Christ. Here, Romans chapter 12, verse 3 fits. Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, that's the Apostle Paul writing, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourself by the faith God has given us. If God made you a genius, you are being humble to acknowledge that as long as you give God the credit. If you can't walk and chew gum at the same time, it's humility to admit that you aren't very athletic. And it's not putting yourself down. It's just acknowledging what is true. God has given you talents, abilities, gifts, and traits. It's humility to boldly step into those as long as we do so with an accurate view of ourselves. The last characteristic of humility that we should cultivate, submit to one another. Healthy submission is a very Christ-like characteristic. I say healthy because I think we all recognize that our culture and history has far more unhealthy examples than healthy ones. Uh, in marriage and in church, we are called to mutual submission. I often talk about this when I officiate at a wedding. To submit means to use all of your authority, your power, your resources, and your time for the benefit of another person. So mutual submission in marriage means that I use all of my authority, power, resources, and time for the benefit of Didi, and she uses all of her authority, power, resources, and time for my benefit. Mutual submission also recognizes strength and expertise. When Stan is up here on the stage playing electric guitar, he is submitted to my leadership as the person in charge of worship. But when a question comes up about a guitar or drum or bass rhythm, he has forgotten more than I'll ever know. So I am submitted to his expertise. That's how it works throughout Dayspring. We need more of that in our lives. We also call this quest for humility, dying to self. Uh, as John the Baptist put it, I must decrease that he, must, that he might increase. In order for Jesus to shine through my life, it must become less about me and more about him. Uh, dying to self doesn't mean not having a self, not properly taking care of yourself. It is putting your ego on the back burner and looking out for others first, trusting that our good and perfect God will take care of you along the way because it's not all about you. And our next truth is probably one uh, of the obvious ones that we live in denial of in our quest for easy, and that is life is difficult. To which you say, duh, Chris. But sometimes it seems we just face problem after problem after problem. Uh, your kid reminds you as they're getting out of the car that they need $100 for that field trip. But your electric bill is three times higher this month because it's been so cold. 
And then your car dies at a stoplight on your way to work. Uh, the next day, you have, to, you have a blowout with your spouse because you're the only one who can seem to do anything around the house. And on Friday, you learn that your company is laying off a third of its staff. Good news is you still have a job. Bad news is that you have a lot of slack to pick up because the work doesn't go away with the workers. It just gets shifted. Problem after problem after problem. As Jesus said, each day has enough trouble of its own. Psychologist M. M. Scott Peck put it this way, most do not fully see this truth that life is difficult. Instead, they moan more or less incessantly, noisily, uh, uh, or subtly about the enormity of their problems, their burdens and their difficulties, as if life were generally easy and it should be easy. We're just, we're complainers. Uh, Emotionally healthy people recognize that life is difficult and adults face their problems head on instead of complaining about them and avoiding them. Uh, Let's start by looking two ways that life, at two ways life is difficult before we aim for a solution. First, life is difficult externally. We've already covered this. Uh, We face challenges as we go about our day. Everything seems harder than it should be, more complex than you want it to be. COVID has only made that worse as we navigate sickness and quarantining and deadlines and workloads. Uh, Problems are just woven into the fabric of our lives as much as lies are. And we get to choose whether we face them head on or run from them. We suffer when we face them, but we end up better on the other side. We suffer when we run from them. The only difference is that kind of suffering leaves us worse off emotionally. Suffering isn't optional. The question is, who do we want to be? How healthy do we want to be on the other side? The second way life is difficult is internally. We all have a fleshly fallen bent toward selfishness, laziness, immaturity, distorting reality, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life that we talked about last week, and a dozen other problems. Until we reach eternity, we all have an an internal battle between our old self, which is our flesh, and our, our new self, which is our spirit, alive through Christ. Our flesh and our spirit are at war, and it is fierce, and it makes the Christian journey difficult most of the time. Our incredible mind employs numerous defense mechanisms to protect us or to insulate us from this reality. It tries to minimize or defend us in order to help reduce the anxiety we feel about life's difficulties. Very quickly, some of those mechanisms are denial when our mind refuses to acknowledge something, uh, something is true. Like we might deny w- that what someone said hurt us. Rationalization, when our minds justify wrong behavior in order to save us from pain. I wouldn't have done this if you wouldn't have done that. So really, it is your fault. Uh, projection, which is when we take something that we don't like about ourselves and project it onto others as if it were true about them. For example, I don't have an anger problem. You have an anger problem. Uh, Suppression and repression. Suppression is consciously choosing not to to not think about painful external or internal things because we don't want to feel bad. Repression is when we, the mind unconsciously keeps painful reality from us. Uh, For example, I know I was sexually abused as a child. I don't remember who did it. I don't remember who it was. My mind has kept that truth from me. Intellectualization. 
Now here we go up into our head and intellectualize painful situations so that we don't have to feel them emotionally. For example, when we're facing the death of a loved one, well, she's with the Lord now, not letting ourselves grieve the loss. Now, this is only scratching the surface, but you're smart people, so I I know you see what I'm talking about. All of these mechanisms can be damaging to our emotional health. Think about the Apostle Paul for a moment. He is the poster child of external and internal problems. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 27, gives us a list of some of his external difficulties. Flogged, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, constant danger, etc., etc., etc. And Romans 7 gives us a very intimate look at his internal battle between his flesh and spirit. Nothing good lives in me. I want to do what is right. I don't want to do what is wrong. But I do it anyway. So how did he make it through life in an emotionally and spiritually healthy manner? Well, he learned to be content no matter what he was facing. Now, here are four possibilities to his secret for contentedness in any and every situation. First, like Paul, we can view trials as an opportunity to grow. Uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, put it this way. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy, for you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. If we really want to follow Christ, then spiritual maturity must be our priority. And as we've already talked about in this series, and in our series last fall, how to get through what you're going through, God wants to use our difficulties to grow us up, to deepen our faith, deepen our roots. Uh, If there was another way to grow us up besides difficulties, God would have used it. And also, like Paul, we must remember God's sovereignty and sufficiency. God is in control and will provide the help you need. If you lose your job, it's no surprise to God. And he's got a plan to deepen your faith in the process. I had this conversation with Twyla Adams many times this past year. as She looked for a new job. She knew it, but she had moments of struggle. Uh, God made a way along the way, and now she has a job again, and she trusts him more than ever. God always makes a way out for those who love and trust him. And then third, like Paul, we must learn to tell God what we need. Uh, Many of you have these two verses memorized from Philippians chapter 4. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for what he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. If the goal is to align our hearts and minds with Christ, then the way that happens best is through prayer. It's totally okay to tell God what you need as long as you remember who is God and who is not. Paul prayed three times for his thorn to be taken away until God reminded him that God's grace was enough. And when that happens, return to step two as you remember God's sovereignty and sufficiency. But don't let that stop you from asking. If you don't tell God what you need, 
how will you know when he's provided it? Which will lead to number four. Again, like Paul, express gratitude. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. Now think about that for a moment. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. Could you reframe difficulties into gifts from God? If anything that causes us to pray is a blessing, then bless God for the reminders that you need him to show up and solve your problems. Thank him for the ways uh, he provides in all things and all circumstances. Give thanks. Yes, life is difficult, but we don't walk alone. And we walk through those difficulties for a purpose, even if we don't understand it at the time. Think about this. Life is difficult for everyone, not just Christ followers. People far from God, people apart from God, walk through the same difficulties we do, only without the same purpose. They are just problems to solve, not tools used by our good and loving God to perfect us. Which way would you rather take the journey? So thank him for that. Let's pray. Father, uh, would that life were easy. Would that we weren't so stubborn and self-willed that we could just have an easy path to the righteousness that you call us to. Uh, Sadly, it's not true. We are self-focused, self-centered people who live as if life is all about me most of the time. And our journey is painful because we don't want to give up on that idea. But Father, for us, make it so. We, we invite you to do what you need to do in our lives to grow us up. And if that is difficulty, then God, may we embrace that full of joy because we know that it means that you're at work in us, preparing us for that great day when we see you face to face. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen, or you can call the church during the week. This ministry is made possible because of people like you, people who believe in what God is doing through Dayspring. Your financial generosity is proof of God's work in your life. If you are just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. This is the responsibility of our Dayspringers. Just enjoy the rest of your day. If you'd like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. Also, thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you are on. It means a lot to me when you pass on the good news of Jesus to your friends and family. Until next week, may you experience God's favor and blessing in your life.